for the family of Ruby Kane who passed away this morning. Our visitation will be from 12 until 2 on Friday, Macmillan Funeral Home, and the funeral will follow at 2 o'clock. Also, Evelyn Hockefeller, a member of Zion Dress, passed away today. Her uh, services for her, it will be a graveside service at Zion's Rest Building on Saturday at 10 o'clock. Congratulations to Mary and uh, Jason and Mary Hall on the birth of Archie Nathaniel. He was born this morning in Tupelo. He weighed seven pounds, 13 ounces, with 19 and a half inches long, and mother and baby are both doing fine. Everyone is invited to the bridal shower in honor of Katie Bates, the bride-elect of Austin May. That will be this Sunday at 1.30 until 3 in the Annex. If you'd like to help with this shower, see Wendy Long about that. Brother Jim says he needs four more volunteers to complete the team to go to assist in packing goods uh, packing boxes for the Church of Christ Disaster Relief in Nashville. Uh, it needs to have volunteers lined up before he can set a date and make further plans there. So if, you, if you're interested in that, see him tonight. Please remember that we will again have our outdoor service this coming Sunday morning uh, at 8.30 in the parking lot on the south side of the building. You can come and sit in your car, or you can bring your lawn chair and sit out in the parking lot. Uh, we'll have plenty of room where you can uh, have distance between people. So plan on being part of the 8.30 service. We'll also have our 10.30 normal worship service here in the building. So we hope that everyone is planning on being at, at one of these at least. Those that we need to remember in our prayers that are sick, Mary Jane Hornberger, uh, this is Bridget's mother, will be having a biopsy uh, in the morning, and she asked us to remember her in our prayers. Also, Brother J.T. Beard will be having surgery on September the 14th. Uh, Brenda Dawson will be having uh, surgery on the 15th. And Adrian Edge will be having surgery on the 16th. So it seems like next week we're going to have a lot of folks having surgery. So please remember all of these. Brother Ken is coming at this time to bring us his, his Wednesday night lesson. Good evening, everybody. Great to see you. We're going to sing a song together to begin. Number 129.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that we have to be able to come together at the end of this day and to join our minds, our spirits together in a study of your word. And Father, I pray that you will help us tonight as we examine that word in so many places, that you will light a fire in us, give us a desire to reach out to other people. Help us to have a heart that yearns to save the lost. I pray that this church will be a great church and that we will be a people of great outreach. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be vessels who carry your saving word to a lost world. Just, Lord, Turn that switch on in us. Give us a real burning desire to share your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. There we go. Here's the truth. It is God's will that the church grow. If we're going to be a really great church, then that means that we are going to be a people of great outreach. Now, when Jesus was ascending to the Father, he told his apostles about his plan. 
the plan that they were going to carry with them really to their grave. The rest of their lives would be dedicated to this task. In Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God's desire, God's will, is that the church grow. In Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, very similar to our text, that one says that they're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe shall be condemned. That was geographical. Take the gospel places. They took that seriously, you know. And as they were beginning this work, Jesus reminded them in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 that they were going to begin right there in Jerusalem. Then it was intended to spread to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Geographical. Start here, spread it around the world. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, the Apostle Paul, in reflecting on his own ministry, said that we preach that gospel to every creature under heaven. I think of that as a text of success with regard to the spread of the gospel, but it wasn't to end just geographically. It was also to be generational. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, and the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we begin with the Lord, and then Paul received that from him, Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, and then Timothy heard what Paul said, and then Timothy was to take that unadulterated, unchanged word and share that with faithful men, and they would teach others also. And it would just continue on and on and on and on. It is God's desire, it is God's will that the church grow. I have the idea, and I hope you will accept this to be true by the time we're finished, that the Great Commission to go into all the world, if that's actually followed, then the church will automatically, all by itself, grow. We live in a time when it's kind of fanciful, in vogue, to have a growth program. We don't need a new growth program. We just need to simply do what the Lord told us to do from the very beginning, to have a heart, a mind, a spirit that looks out, whose desire it is to share what you have as pertains to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody else. The very first lesson in our series about how to build a great church was with regard to our mission. Well, guess what our mission is? There are a lot of things that churches want to do, but our main focus, our mission, our purpose is to save souls. 
we need to be very careful to always keep that idea front and center, that it be the most important thing, and that it guide everything else that we do. Now, what is it that is going to help me to be a person involved in outreach? Well, we're going to discover in our study tonight that that requires a lot of commitment. Not just generally true as regards the church, the body of Christ, but I'm talking specifically about every single individual. Every individual member of this church needs to be committed to the idea of outreach. So let's just think in the beginning that what we want to do is to be committed to growth. New Testament growth was phenomenal. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, you'll see in that text, the Bible describes that growth, and it says that the Lord added to the church, what's this word now? Daily, those who were being saved. They were being added daily. In chapter 5 and verse 14, that text says that they were increasingly added, both men and women. In chapter 6, verse 7, it uses a different word. It says that they were multiplying. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the gospel, to the truth. In chapter 9 and verse 31, it uses that word again, that they were multiplying. In chapter 11 and verse 24, it says that a great many were added and in chapter 16 and verse 5, it just simply says that they increased in number daily. Now, I want you to notice that. It wasn't just at the beginning. Many times when we talk about the establishment of the church and we want to build excitement about evangelism and the effectiveness of the gospel, we will point to the first sermon that was preached. We'll say, well, 3,000 souls responded to the gospel that day. Hey, that's great. Peace. Wonderful. But did you realize, as time went on, things just intensified. Did you see that? All the way through that book is the emphasis upon the gospel being preached and people being added, increasingly added, and it multiplying. What would cause that to happen? Well, I know that in the beginning we had these 12 apostles. So, on the basis of the 12, that growth was taking place? Well, yes and no. It was on the basis of the message that they were preaching, that the gospel was expanding, increasing, and multiplying. But listen, the people that they converted were then taking that gospel to their friends. And it became, as it were, exponential growth. The few then increased to the many. And when I think about the kind of commitment that those folks had, and I measure it against what I see today, I guess I'm not really surprised that if I asked you, would you say 
as in the first century, the church was experiencing phenomenal growth, would you say it's phenomenal today? Probably not. What were they like? Well, I can tell you what Jesus told them he expected of them. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Deny yourself. Commitment every single day. That's tough, but that's serious commitment. Lord, I give it all to you. Oh, give it all. Not just myself. Luke chapter 14, verse 33 says, Whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That means it's not just myself I'm giving up. I'm also going to commit all the stuff that I have. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all the things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. How far would that go, Lord? Well, let's just put it this way. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37, he says, if anyone loves father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In the first century, there was tremendous commitment to the Lord. Now, what we've got to enjoy today is that same level and impact of commitment. Well, Ken, you know, I've served the Lord and, and I've had my ups and downs and real challenges and I've suffered for, for Jesus. So, you know, I suffered that time and that was some years ago and you know, I've, I've really put in for the Lord. I'm going I'm to depend on others now to do their thing. I think if the Apostle Paul heard that, he'd probably laugh. He'd be like, what was the thing you suffered? Because the Apostle Paul, in demonstration, I guess, of his own commitment, suffered much for Jesus and was willing to do so. In fact, he wouldn't brag about it, but when pushed to do so, just simply as a matter of fact, he could lay that thing out there. And, and I don't know anybody who would have otherwise questioned his dedication after the listing of offenses that he suffered himself. They would certainly have been quieted. In 2 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 22, he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of robbers, and perils of waters, and perils of my own countrymen, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirsting and fasting, often in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. 
Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I'll boast in the things that concern my infirmity. He said, I'm not hanging up my coat and my hat because I suffered something. He said, I'm suffering so that the cause of Jesus Christ will continue on. And the expectation then would be, well, when I finally come to the end of my way, then somebody else will also suffer those things because we are committed. Be committed to growth. Be committed to love, unity, and peace. Because if you've done, if you've done even the lightest perusal of New Testament scriptures, you know that those elements right there are at the very heart of our existence together, if not the very advertisement of what Christianity is altogether. Let's look at them separately for just a few minutes. Love. we got to be committed to genuine love, and here's the reason. It's the thing... In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, how is it that people will know I'm a disciple of Jesus? Well, Jesus says the way that they'll know is by the way you love. Well, how is it we're going to love, Jesus? You love like I loved. Well, I don't have to tell you what that love drove Jesus to do. Ultimately, it was to save us. But you know, the commitment that he made to saving us involved the giving of his own life to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus' love took him to the cross. Jesus said, love like I do. Love with all that you've got. Well, you might say, yeah, I'll, I'll love those people that love me back like that, but boy, you cross me. What? Stop. Whoa. Who was crossing Jesus when he went and died for us? Well, everybody. Not just in his own time. Can I just say this? That you did that too. We're all responsible for Jesus being on that cross because of our sin. And Jesus loved us when we were still in our sin. Romans 5, 6 to 9. So if I'm going to have the kind of love that Jesus has, I have a love that is all in with everybody. There is love. There is unity. Now I don't want us to confuse unity with union. There's a lot of union that takes place in the world. That is, people just get together. And what they intend to do is just set aside their differences in order to be together, to have union. That's not what Jesus called for. Jesus called for unity. And unity has to do with one-mindedness. And that one-mindedness has its attention set, its commitment in the truth. Not some truth, not a truth, but the truth. Jesus outlines that 
in his hope for his disciples in the midst of prayer. In John 17, verses 20 and 21, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for all those who are going to believe in me through their word, that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Whoa, there's another identifying factor. It isn't just that we love and we're all in with everybody, but we're also all in with the truth. Not a truth, but the truth. The truth that comes from God, was spoken by Jesus, was handed to His apostles. And as Paul said just a moment ago, is handed then to those who follow after, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It is a continuation of that one truth, generation after generation after generation, unchanged from the very beginning. One truth. The authority found in the Scriptures themselves, derived by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there's love, there's unity, and then there's peace. Because here's the thing. I may think I'm loving and I'm united, but oh boy, we, we bump heads, so we just can't be together. Wait, stop. Where's the love? Where's the unity? <laughs> well, some of that is going to be policed by that little word, peace. Listen to Philippians 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, he says, if there's any consolation, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Uh, who gets promoted here? You know, I'm right and it's my way or the highway. Not, not according to this, it isn't. According to this, in love and in the holding and maintenance of truth, I am desirous in the body of Christ to maintain that love and that unity. And so... In many cases, I'll, I'll just defer to you in matters of opinion. You know what? I, I have to be committed that I don't have to have my way. I do not have to have my way. I don't have to prove that I'm smarter or more important than anybody else because I'm just one part of a whole. I'm just one part of the body. We've got to be committed to this, this idea of love, unity, and peace. And we've also got to be committed to the idea of evangelism. Now, if evangelism is a dirty word with you, I'm sorry. And I, I, I don't know why that is. I suspect it is that many times when we think of evangelism we immediately do some introspection and we say, well, now, when you're talking about evangelism, are you talking about having a Bible study with somebody? And if I'm having a Bible study with somebody, then, well, what exactly is going to be involved in that? And what's, what, kind of, what kind of studies do I need to do? And, and how, how, am I going to, how am I going to get involved in that? And you know what? I feel ill-equipped and all of that. Let's back up from that for just a minute and... 
instead of just thinking about the task of sharing the gospel with somebody to begin with, let's start with what would motivate us to want to share the gospel with somebody. What would motivate me to want to sit down with a friend or family member, maybe just a new acquaintance? What would motivate me to want to share the gospel with them? Well, first of all, I would say to you that it's a life and death situation. Let's think about life for just a minute. Every year, 131.4 million people are born into the world. That's 360,000 every single day. Which means then, if you break it on down, that every single second, four people are being born into this world. Every second, four people. Let's talk about death. Every year, 55.3 million people die. That's 151,600 people who die every single day. That's roughly, if you break it down, two every second. Two people are dying every second. Watch that now. Two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen. You get the idea? How many of those do you suppose heard the gospel and obeyed it and were saved? Now, there are four coming in every second that need the gospel. And there are two going out that needed to hear the gospel. When I think about the enormity of humanity that exists around 8 billion people right now, that motivates me to want to win some souls because I know, I know this, don't you? That every second that's clicking by, most of those folks are being lost for eternity. The Lord put us here to stop that. And they keep flooding into the planet. So that means the work is becoming more and more Difficult. Now, does God want them saved? Yes, He does. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, it says that the Lord desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Every second, four people come into the world that God wants to be saved. And every second, two people die that God wanted to be saved. Who did He put here to save these people? He put us here. You heard the Great Commission that's been handed down from generation to generation. It has come to our hands. And we are now the ones responsible for meeting this enormous task of salvation. Or how are they going to be taught? 
Well, Romans 10, beginning verse 13 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We know what will save them. It's the word of God. If they will hear it and they will believe it and they will act on it, have their sins washed away, they'll be saved. You say, Ken, come on, man. You know that it would be impossible for us to reach 8 billion people. And I stand before you to say, no, I don't know that. In fact, I believe that one person could be the catalyst for saving 8 billion people. You say, Ken, are you talking about, you know, somebody becoming a great television evangelist? No. You're talking about using the internet and reaching people on, on the World Wide Web? No. What I'm talking about is doing exactly what Jesus said to do. Preach the gospel to another person. Ken, how is that even possible? Well, let's get out our calculator here. Here's the crazy idea that I have. You're going to be like, Ken, really? Yeah, really. What I believe is, let's say Ken was motivated to become evangelistic and share the gospel with somebody. And he made it his goal every year to save one soul. I'm not talking about going down to Guyana or some other place and, and baptizing 30 people and then that being kind of it. Not that. I'm saying dedicating myself just to the whole year to save one soul. Give myself an entire year. And then, once they are saved, to teach them and encourage them to do the same thing that I have done. And so then they become responsible the next year to save another soul. Okay, let's do this. So here I am, year one. I'm going to share the gospel with somebody. They're going to obey it. In the world now, we have two Christians in the first year. But the second year, I'm going to teach somebody the gospel, and he's going to teach somebody the gospel. Now there's four of us the second year. The third year, there's eight. The fourth year, 16. Fifth year, 32. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty. After thirty years of doing that, we've reached a billion people. Actually, one billion seventy-three million. Thirty years, thirty-one, thirty-two, in thirty-three years. If we all just did what Jesus taught us to do, and we were committed to that, just saving one soul every year, 
and then our converts doing the same, in 33 years, we would have converted 8.58 billion people. Don't tell me that's impossible. I know it is possible. Here's what makes it possible. That is people being committed to sharing the gospel. Now, if I don't do that, how many will be saved? You don't need a calculator for that one, do you? If I don't do it, and you don't do it, well, there won't be any saved. And then every second, two people will go out into eternity lost. And let me ask you, whose fault will that be? You say, well, it'll be their fault because they did not obey the gospel. Hey, gotcha, you're right. But you didn't teach it to them either. I have a commitment. You have a commitment to share the gospel because that's God's will for us. Be committed, will you? Be committed to sharing the gospel. You say, well, Ken, I can't guarantee that the person I teach will obey the gospel. No, no, you can't. But if all of us were trying, don't you imagine some of them would? The last thing I want you to think about is being committed to the message of the gospel. Now, Ken, what exactly is it that I'm supposed to preach? What am, I, what am I supposed to teach them? It is the simple news of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul says that he determined not to know anything among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the basic message of the gospel. He gets more detailed in chapter 15. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you've received, and which also you stand, but which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving message of the gospel, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is that a saving message? Well, you will remember Jesus died on that cross to wash our sins away. Now, to obey the gospel is, according to Romans 6, verses 17 and 18, to obey a form of doctrine. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine in which you were delivered and have been set free from sin, became slaves of righteousness. What is that doctrine? Well, I know it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but how do, how do I obey facts? Well, previously in this chapter, he, he gives us the form of it, and it's baptism. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So I, I die with Jesus. He shed His blood to wash my sins away. I die with Jesus. I have my sins washed away in His death. In baptism, I rise up out of that water having had my sins washed away, the old man of sin in the grave, rising to newness of life. 
In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, that text tells us that Jesus washed away our sins in his own blood. And then that, that explains why Ananias says to Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He was able to be baptized and wash away his sins because the washing was the blood of Jesus. The water symbolized the burial of Jesus, the place where you die spiritually. And you rise up out of that just like Jesus was resurrected to new life. That, isn't that simple? That is the basic message of the gospel. If you are a child of God, that's what happened to you. You believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus himself said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John chapter 8, verse 24. So I'm confident I've got to believe in him. And I have to repent. In Luke 13, there is this scenario where these people die basically from circumstances that were just kind of odd circumstances, accidents. But Jesus says, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. You will. If you do not repent, you're going to die in that sin that you've been caught in, whether it was an accident or not. We have to confess the name of Jesus Christ just as Jesus, we hope, and our belief of him confesses us before the Father. If we don't confess him, he won't confess us. We've turned our life around in repentance. In fact, on the day of Pentecost that that we noted earlier, we saw that all those folks, those 3,000 souls were added to the church. The Lord added them daily. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, after the people whose hearts were cut asked Peter and the others what they needed to do to be saved, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission, for the forgiveness of your sins. Does that make sense? Well, based on what we've seen already, of course it does. I'm turning away from my sin, and I'm having my sins washed away by the blood of Jesus as I'm buried with Jesus in baptism. It is is a simple thing. If I could just take those simple ideas and share them with another person this year, and then they did that with someone else, and we continued that for 33 years, well, we would have won the world over many times, wouldn't we? It's really just that simple. doesn't take a special gimmick, but what it does take is commitment, commitment to reach out. So I want to motivate, encourage you to be a part of a great church, a church whose desire to be great is wrapped up in a lot of components. But tonight I'm thinking especially about outreach itself. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because in my mind, what I'm thinking is, if I ask this group, although I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody, if I ask this group, are you that committed? I'm going to think yes, okay? Because I can tell you one person who is committed to that, and that will be this one right here. I'm going to do that. 
I'm encouraging you to do the same. Let's have a prayer. And then after that, I want to dismiss, well, I want to dismiss the parents, go get the kids, and then give them a minute or so, and then we'll all go together. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the, the privilege, the benefit that we have to be able to study. And thank you, Lord, for your word that's so simple, for your plan that's so simple. All you need are saved people with a commitment to save other people. That, seem, that seems so simple. Lord, let that be me. Let that be me who carries the gospel to someone who's lost. Give me the desire, the wherewithal, the skill to be able to accomplish it, knowing that it's really your word that is cutting their heart. Help me to love people enough to do that. Thank you for the privilege to share these ideas with this group here tonight. And, and I know, and they know too, that from right here in Boonville, by our actions, we can save through your gospel the power to save. We can save the whole world. And thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, parents, go get your kids. Everybody else, wait just a minute or two, and then you may also go.